what's going on podcasting world welcome back to another episode from core consult rx podcast my name is mike corvino with me as always cole swanson cole what's up man tired yeah it's been a long one for you yeah no i'm not tired we don't we don't get tired right that's a good point i was i mean i was a little embarrassed for you when you first <laughs> said that that's fine no nah, just a long day yeah what you, you did 13 today yes the best kind yes and will, you know what's even better is recording podcast afterwards because then it's all fresh in your mind. Right, exactly. The the <laughs> if we talked about checking prescriptions, it'd be fresh in my mind. <laughs> exactly. Just checking them and like, yep, that looks right. Yep, <laughs> looks good. Looks, looks good. Oh yeah, that's that's circular and orange. Okay, that's the right one. No, it's all good. The uh, I feel like this is one of those things that like uh, this is a good. This is a hard subject, even if we were working in you know certain fields so we're gonna yeah. kind of get to it today it's kind of a specialty underneath something regular there you go you know so we're going to talk today about pulmonary arterial hypertension um so this is something that a lot of uh people that work in like if your pharmacist working in retail or pharmacist you know working in you know am care type settings probably won't see too much of this this is more of like a critical care inpatient internal medicine type thing um pulmonology specifically but uh so if you're in pulmonology then uh if you want to for pa or nursing listeners or whatever you may be uh, very familiar with this but yeah we um the only thing i really ever see uh, in retail regarding this is the, like the at circa or the one of the PD five inhibitors using mm-hmm. being used daily and having to get PAs for it because insurance only wants to pay for a few. Yeah. That's pretty much it. All these other ones we don't really see. Yeah. Not too much in retail pharmacy. No. Um, I don't see them too much in the clinic setting either. Um, very few patients would come in on these meds that I've ever seen. So who prescribes these things? Pulmonologists? Typically pulmonologists is yeah. who's going to be a specialist that's dealing with this. Yeah. So to kind of get started, um, we'll just kind of talk about some background as far as what is uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. So you know, really it starts with an imbalance of um, endothelial vasoconstrictors um, and leads to eventually this, this buildup in um, pulmonary artery pressure. And so, you know, when we think about our vasoconstrictors, our vasodilators, you know, we have like our... Um, thromboxane or endothelin one, uh, things like that. And for vasodilators, we have like our prostacyclin or nitric oxide. And so these are typically kind of keeping this, uh, you know, hemostasis, this balance. And, and, uh, when this gets out of, out of whack, that's when we get this decrease in blood flow through the pulmonary artery, um, leading to vascular resistance in the pulmonary artery. And then obviously pressure goes up from over time. Um, this can also lead to increased risk of thrombosis as well. So, and then, you know, pulmonary embolisms and all those things we take, uh, we have to worry about. Um, there's a whole bunch of potential causes that can that can lead to this and um, we'll look at that when we kind of classify some of the different types but as far as like a definition um, the one of the things we would want to do is we'd have to get a um, right heart catheterization to kind of make take these measurements but we want to get the mean pulmonary artery pressure or the MPAP uh, which is going to be greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury at rest um, we would also want to look at the pulmonary wedge pressure, um, which would be less than 15 millimeters of mercury to define pulmonary arterial hypertension. 
And then we would also want to look uh, potentially at the pulmonary vascular resistance, which would be um, equivalent to greater than three wood units. Uh, so again, um, right heart catheterization to diagnose this. So you can get like a, uh, a swan gas catheter and would get these measurements. Wood units. Wood units, Good. yes. Yeah, Excellent. Good old wood units. Uh, yeah, and the process of the vascular narrowing is pretty similar to what we see elsewhere uh, outside of the pulmonary artery. So you have the regular artery. You're going to have vasoconstriction due to various mechanisms, which we'll go through, uh, lead to vascular remodeling, and then eventually uh, stiffening of the vascular wall, leading to the increase in pressure. Uh, an increasing risk for thrombosis. But like Mike said, there are multiple classifications. Uh, there's five to be exact. Um, the first includes like idiopathic, familial, um, or associated conditions uh, to go along with that. Uh, the second is more related to heart disease, specifically left heart disease, like valve stenosis or heart failure. Uh, the third classification is lung diseases or hypoxia. That's usually what I think of when I think of it being related to COPD, but there are other ways you can, that are other things that can lead to a PAH. Um, also, number four would be chronic thromboembolic, so um, clotting disorders um, in the lungs specifically that's leading to this increase in pressure. And then five is the catch-all. It's the hypertension with unclear uh, mechanisms like sarcoidosis, um, I think, uh, HIV may fall under this one, either this or the first, um, but essentially it's just unclear why it's happening, but some condition may be leading to it. Yeah. And it can even be caused by certain um, drugs or toxins or things like that, which would fall under the first yeah. um, classification, but it's something we also don't think about too, is some kind of a toxicity. And methamphetamine can definitely mm -hmm. cause it. Yeah. 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 It's a good point. So the, the other um, things is it, there is a genetic component. So some patients that um, would be considered like high risk and may be candidates to, to screen um, for this would be patients that have a known um, BMPR2 mutation. And there's actually several other mutations, but that one to my knowledge is the most common um, gene mutation. Patients that have uh, scleroderma um, are definitely um, candidates to be screened for pulmonary arterial hypertension is time goes on and then uh, patients that um, maybe have like portal hypertension due to um, you know they're awaiting a liver transplant um, are patients as well that we would want to screen for this um, and there's others as well but basically um, some of the symptoms uh, especially kind of in the early stages dyspnea fatigue weakness um, exertion intolerance things like that and then uh, progresses to symptoms of right heart failure so lower extremity edema chest pain syncope things like that um in you know the we we further it down based on a patient's ba basically quality of life their ability to engage in physical activity so when we walk through the classifications of it we're different you know um causes, but there's also the World Health Organization's functional classes as well. And that's really what we kind of use to measure um, as far as the treatment options that we start patients on. So a functional cast is one through four, um, one being no limitation on physical activity. So patients can basically do ordinary physical activity, doesn't cause any increase in dyspnea or fatigue or anything. 
um, those are the patients that we're probably not really treating with anything necessarily. We're just kind of monitoring and um, evaluating when we would treat them with therapy. Uh, class two is going to be patients with mild limitation of physical activity. So there's no discomfort at rest, but normal physical activity can potentially cause an increase in like dyspnea and fatigue. And then three is where there's marked limitation in physical activity. So again, still no discomfort at rest, but less than normal physical activity causes these uh, issues of dyspnea. And then um, patients that have functional class four are considered um, to be unable to perform any physical activity even at rest. So they are going to have signs of right ventricular failure, dyspnea fatigue are present at rest, um, and um, they they may be placed in this category if they experience uh, like syncope episodes as well on top of um, their other symptoms. Right, that they're relating to the PAH. Right. Yeah. So like Mike said, there's no cure for this. It's kind of like heart failure. You're trying to slow the progression, prevent progression, improve their functional class. Um, so as far as goals for when you're treating patients, whether non-pharmacological or pharmacological, uh, it's to alleviate their symptoms. So how far can they walk? So you're looking at similar things like COPD and heart failure. So you might do a six-minute walk test to um, track their progression over time. You know, like I said, improve quality of life, prevent progression, improve long-term survival. Um the evidence for the drugs that we're going to talk about are primarily for the group one patients. Um, so that familial or associated conditions, even idiopathic, um, as opposed to being caused by other things like COPD. In that case, I guess you're really just treating the underlying condition or treating the uh, causing condition like COPD, trying to improve that and might improve the, or at least delay progression of the PAH. Um, the uh, drugs are going to target specific things um, they might supplement endogenous vasodilators. You might try to inhibit the vasoconstrictors that we talked about um, and also reduce endothelial, endothelial platelet interaction uh, to try to decrease the risk of thrombosis. Um, but it is kind of controversial. The data isn't strong as to whether uh, the drugs actually improve survival. So for a lot of them, you're just looking at those quality of life measures. Yeah. And what's interesting too is, you know, this is something that we haven't had a lot of treatment options for um, all, for that long. And if, if we think about like the timeline of, of medications, I mean, we had one of our first um, drugs that we'll talk about, epoprostenol, back in 1995, which in that wasn't a great option. It wasn't until really like 2001, um, you know, to 2009 or so that we had uh, better options. And in 2013, we got some of our more recent options as well. So it's this has been something that we haven't been able to treat that long. So there's a, not a strong life expectancy at all um, before. So we're just now kind of getting better at treating this. But um, to kind of start off the, the treatment process, one of the things that we want to look at is uh, the supportive therapies as well. Um, before we kind of get into the actual medications targeting the actual PAH. So supportive therapies, you know, we're looking at things like um, oral anticoagulants for one. So patients that have, especially like idiopathic PAH, um, or if it's under, if it's caused by an underlying you know, clotting disorder, something like that, we're going to look at oral anticoagulants, so most likely like warfarin or something, um, as well as diuretics for symptom relief. So if a patient is... Um, 
you know, has heart failure. So then we give them loop diuretics, things like that to, to limit, um, the, the edema that they have. So we can use things uh, just like that in PAH, um, as well as just limiting the fluid intake. Um, sometimes they will lo- lower patients to 1.5 liters per day. Um, low sodium diets as well, um, to two, two to three grams per day. And then, um, patients can also look at using supplemental oxygen in some cases. Typically, we would save that for patients that are functional group three or so that have some kind of an underlying lung disease on top of the PAH. And, um, or if a patient's going to be at like high altitude, so like plane, plane rides, things like that, they may need to use um, supplemental oxygen for a short period of time. But um, the other thing too, and I go back to going back to uh, the anticoagulants, the target INR, if a patient is going to be put on warfarin um, for supportive therapy, target INR is actually going to be 1.5 to 2.5. So it's a little bit different than like our DVT or um, VTE uh, treatment um, where we would get two, 2 to 3 or like mitral valve where we'd have 2.5 to 3.5. It makes me think the risk might be just slightly lower than those yeah, conditions. You know? for sure. And um, th- there's not really any data that I've ever seen with the DOAX. I'm sure that someone out there is looking at it, but I haven't seen any data that says that we can use DOAX in this patient population. Um, I'm sure someone's out there trying it, though. Uh, digoxin is used sometimes if the patients have uh, symptoms of right heart failure and uh, atrial fibrillation as well to slow that heart rate. Um, however, there's no real long-term trials, so this is used some, but the actual benefit isn't super clear. Yeah, going along with the... Uh limiting fluids and the diuretics similar to heart failure, you would want to counsel these patients to um, keep their daily weights or monitor their daily weights to see if they have any huge or significant jump in weight, uh, water weight specifically. So you may want to, you know, increase their dose of diuretic or uh, might mean that they're having an exacerbation. If it's bad enough, they might need to uh, be admitted. And it could lead to heart failure as well. So, that's the other thing is you got to make sure that these patients aren't um, going into heart failure. Right. And the other thing is, is if it's a younger female patient, we would want to um, consult them on avoiding pregnancy if possible um, because there's a uh, 30 to 50% maternal mortality rate in patients with pH that become pregnant. And then um, before we actually start therapy with um, one of the targeted uh, agents for PAH, we would want to do uh, what they call um, vasoreactivity testing to see if the person is going to be a candidate for calcium channel blockers as a first-line agent. So what they do is they basically will give one of three agents um, and see how the patient reacts to that to see if they have this uh, vasoreactive response, this vasodilatory response. And if they do, then they are a candidate for using calcium channel blockers. If not, then we move on to our other uh, first-line options. So there's there's three different uh, options available. So there's inhaled nitric oxide. Um, there's epoprostenol, which is a process cyclin analog, and there's also um, adenosine. And those th- the three of them, they're, they're different dosing for each of them. Um, I think nitric oxide is probably the most uh, common used in, in centers that test for this. And uh, again, you're trying to look for a specific response um, in the patient. And so if they 
are a responder, then you can move on to calcium channel blockers. Um, if not, if they're considered non-vasoreactive, then you move on to the other treatments. And uh, not a ton of patients actually will respond to vasoreactive um, therapy. In fact, it's only around probably 13% or so um, that can actually be started on calcium channel blockers. A lot of them um, have to move on to other therapies. But if they do respond, it is a pretty good option because mm-hmm. they're cheap and well-tolerated versus a lot of the other options, uh, which are not. Um, and one of the things that can throw people off is the the daily doses of calcium channel blockers. And in fact, I've seen a couple of these when I was working in retail pharmacy. Um, that was a little bit weird when you first see it. So with amlodipine, for instance, because the ones that are most commonly used, we have amlodipine, we have uh, nifedipine, um, as well as diltiazem. Um Amlodipine doses can be 20 to 30 milligrams per day. So typically, if you're a retail pharmacist and you see someone on 30 milligrams of amlodipine, that's going to probably throw you for a little bit of a loop. Speaking of which, I got a, uh, I got a prescription today. It was for prednisone, 50 milligrams. It was for 20 tablets taken as uh, a single dose. It's like 1,000 milligrams. I was like, hmm, that can't be right. So I called and, and talked to them, and they were they just didn't want to do their last dose of IV steroids. They were doing it PO, apparently. Wow. So they said that was right. Oh. It was neurology. Cool. 1,000 uh, milligrams of steroid. 1,000 milligrams. The person's going to be open for four days straight. I know. I was like, hmm, documenting this one. Ouch. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and then diltiazem uh, doses can be up to 720 milligrams total per day. So... A lot, a lot of big doses with the CCBs. And then, like I said, I mentioned diltiazem as far as the non-dihydros, um, but um, I didn't mention verapamil. And that's because verapamil is, um, has a little bit more potent negative inotropic effects, so we probably wouldn't want to use verapamil in these patients. Um, and then usually we would go with amlodipine or um, nifedipine, but diltiazem is an option if the patient has uh, concomitant tachycardia as well. So the calcium channel blockers, first line option, and then um, we're moving on to our more hardcore uh, drugs that are more specific for PAH if um, those are not an option. So like I said, only about 13% or so are going to actually be candidates, and then only about 7% of patients that start on them actually stay on them. So pretty low numbers of patients who are treated just with calcium channel blockers, but it does happen. All right. So our more advanced therapies, um, pretty much, like I said, we're starting with functional class two. Um, so patients who are, you know, class one, we're not really, um, treating with those necessarily. We're trying to kind of monitoring and seeing how the patient progresses. But I think, um, you know, let's just go through the actual classes and then we can come back to where they fit in therapy. Does that sound okay. good? Yeah. So we'll start off with the uh, prostacyclin analogs. So I already mentioned apoprostenol. Um, you know, these these agents are all going to be endogenous prostacyclin um, pr- producing um or rather, uh, they're going to be mimicking the endogenous process cyclone um, that's produced in these patients. So um, the epiprostanol was the first agent, and then there's um, iloprost, um, pop- um, poprostanol, and then uh, triprostanol as well. Um, I should have practiced these words before I started speaking. <laughs> um, but these I'm are, glad you had to say them. The, <laughs> these are all going to be used in patients um, 
specifically like functional classes three and four and even more likely four. Um, so these are basically safe for patients that have kind of a poor prognosis is first line agents. So we use some of our newer agents um, if they've if they're more controlled or combination therapy, if they're more controlled, but if their prognosis is poor kind of from the start, then we can look at these pretty close to first line. So most of these are IV or sub Q. Do you know where they're receiving these IV doses? I guess it's. So they have I mean, like a, um, they have like an infusion pump in some of them. So I think like Epiprostenol, um, they actually have like a portable device that kind of infuse like a home infusion pump that, oh, they would, yeah. that they would receive yeah gotcha um the problem with these is there's a lot of catheter related and infusion pump related infections in fact the cdc says with epoprostenol specifically that um one uh, infection every three years for patients being treated with these agents so um the, the risk of infection is very high uh, plus the half life. so for epoprostenol specifically the um the risk is really high because the infect the infusion rate is such a short half life. So you have to constantly keep up with the doses. And if a person does need to come off abruptly, um, they have to be weaned off because of that half life being so short. Mm -hmm. They have a high instance of rebound um, pulmonary hypertension or vasoconstriction if the patient just stops the medication abruptly. Right. So it's you know. Ibuprostenol is one of the the prostaglandins that has like the actual um, data that shows the proven benefit and all that, but it is also um, inconvenient as far as if the patient has to stop it abruptly. So another one is the teprostanil, which has a longer half life, so it wouldn't have that issue of rebound um, constriction and rebound uh, increase in pulmonary hypertension. Um, but it's also a prostaglandin analog. It's dosing. It can be given sub-Q or IV. Um, the There is generally, you, know, you want to start low and go slow and titrate, and sometimes patients don't tolerate it very well, so they can decrease the dose. Uh, also has an infection risk, and injection site pain um, is the most common reaction. Um, so it's highly recommended to rotate injection sites. This is usually also used in functional classes of 3 and 4, um, it's going to have similar outcomes to epiprostenol and it could in improve the six minute um, walk test and hemodynamics. But as far as survival, um, there's not great data there, um, but it does have slightly higher risks of bloodstream infections than epiprostenol. Yeah. Um, Eloprost and uh, the... The other version of triprostanol that um, is a little bit newer, that's the inhaled version. Um, so these are these are both a little bit easier. They come in almost it looks like a almost like a nebulizer, um, handheld nebulizer that these are administered through, and um, the inhalations for iloprost is takes four to ten minutes or so. So it's you know, a com time commitment for these patients that to sit there and have this dose administered. Um, and that one also has a short half-life like epoprostenol as well. So patients would need like a backup supply of medication in case that they ran out because they, you know, would have that rebound. I like how your strategy is just say it really fast and then nobody will be able to tell us that we're saying it wrong. Iloprost? Yeah, yeah, I like that too. I've gotten better now that I've said it wrong like the first three <laughs> times. But it's okay. What are you going to do? My <laughs> so, um... The, there's also an oral version as well um, for triprostanol. 
And this one uh, is taken twice a day um, or three times a day, depending on the dose that's given. And it can be taken um, or must be taken rather with food and um, it can't be crushed. So the he- the adverse effects, um, just headache, nausea, diarrhea, the you know pretty standard adverse effects. Um, however, it is contraindicated if the patient has moderate to severe hepatic impairment. Um, the evidence for this, because it can be used as monotherapy, is uh, an improvement of 23 meters in six-minute walk distance. And there's also um, randomized control trials that have looked at using it in combination with some of the other agents that we're going to talk about. Um, whereas the some of the other combos that we've seen um, does have some some solid benefit with the combination. This one, when used when used in combination with some of the other classes, doesn't really show an additional benefit, uh, especially in regards to six minute walk distance. Right. So usually used as monotherapy. And we should probably mention that this whole class of medication it's a supplement, a supplemental vasodilator. That's essentially what these are uh, doing and why they can improve symptoms. Yeah. So um, moving on to the endothelin uh, receptor antagonist. So this is targeting the vasoconstriction side of things. So this is blocking the vasoconstriction. You're blocking those, those receptors from having endothelium 1 or endothelium 2 bind. And so there's um, three different medications that we uh, typically think of. So um, bacetin, ambrosetin, and... Um, Massatentin. I believe I said that right. I think you did. Um, so those are the three agents that we think about. And again, this is decreasing those endogenous vasoconstrictors. And um, we see an improvement in exercise capacity with these. We see improvement in hemodynamics. Um, and we see, uh, in some cases, a, a functional class improvement as well, where patients can maybe go from like a three to a two. And um, these all do have a REMS program associated with them, though, because they're pregnancy category X. Mm-hmm. And so they do have REMS programs associated with them. Vation has to make sure that they um, are not pregnant. Um, uh, so I guess starting off with bocetin, um, adverse effects uh, can potentially cause liver in- injury. So we would want to monitor our LFTs, total bilirubin, things like that. Um, can also cause some anemia um, as well as palpitations and peripheral edema. Um, the the risk of increased liver enzymes, basically you need to reduce the dose if there is a three to five times the upper limit um, of normal for your LFTs is, is reached after you've kind of titrated up. So dose limitations needed if you notice these this three to five increase in LFTs. Uh, also, you need to check CBC every three months because of the risk of anemia. And then peripheral edema is always the most common adverse effect of those that you would run into. And uh, it's approved or indicated for the um, World Health Organization functional classes 2, 3, and 4. Right. Uh, the prostaglandin analogs are primarily just 3 and 4. Mm-hmm. And that um, is kind of class-wide for these as well, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, the next is the ambrosentin. Similar adverse effects, peripheral edema, flushing, um, palpitations, um, possibly nasal congestion and anemia, also pregnancy category X. Um, but the effect on the liver is not significant like with bocentin. Uh, in clinical trials, there wasn't an increase in LFTs, so that's something to consider for a patient who may have an issue with that. So mesocentin is... The uh, other agent that we will talk about, and it's once daily, 
Um, and it's actually a, uh, targets two different um, receptors, so it has dual activity. And um, this is th- th- there was a study that was done called the Seraphin trial um, that basically randomized patients to, um, to being on this once a day, um, and then other the patients could be on other treatments as well, except for the prostacyclines. And then uh, over three months, both doses, because they tested 3 and 10 milligrams daily, demonstrated statistically significant decreases in the composite endpoint of events related to PAH or death compared to placebo. So this is one of the, because there was the death component of that, um, if you look in like DePiro's pharmacotherapy, the uh, the treatment algorithm that they have listed on there, there's several options uh, listed, but there's some that are in bold. The ones that are in bold have the outcome data mm. like for mortality. And so this is one of them that they included in there. It's specifically from that Seraphin trial. Yeah, we love that death component. Yeah. Love getting that. If we, can, if we can avoid death, that's great. That's the primary goal. Solid. All right, so the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. So... The, these two A drugs are going to be ones we've most likely heard of before. So, yes. sildenafil and tadalafil. Mm-hmm. So, these are the ones we typically think of as being uh, Viagra and Cialis for um, erectile dysfunction. However, we're using them differently here. And uh, the doses are different as well. Um, but basically, you're using the same mechanism. So, you're increasing that cyclic GMP, um, which leads to the vasorelaxation and um, dilation. And typically going to be dosed, so sildenafil is that 20 milligram, which some people were using even for erectile dysfunction because mm-hmm. when the insurance wasn't paying for Viagra. Um, They'd be like, take five of these yeah. one hour before, yeah. Right, five tablets. <laughs> um, typically in that case, you're using three times a day um, for the 20 milligrams, but sometimes you do use higher doses as well. And you still get the, the potential for headaches, flushing, um, dyspepsia, um, and then even changes in vision as well. And I think that comes from a binding, if I remember correctly, binding to phosphodiesterase 6, which is why if you take that long enough, um, there is a worry about changes in vision with sildenafil, but not with tadalafil because tadalafil doesn't have the same activity for phosphodiesterase 6. Um, and, you know, we don't think about this with ED because you're not taking it every day. I mean, maybe some people are, but most human beings aren't. And uh, so you're not taking it every day, so you're not really worried about it. But this this is something that patients have to take on a daily basis. So we would be more concerned with sildenafil causing some changes in vision in this case. Um, also, uh, like I said, the uh, tadalafil dose, 40 milligrams once a day. Um, and then it seems to be uh, a little bit greater improvement with exercise capacity and um, time to clinical worsening. Um, is You get improvements in that with Tadalafil, whereas those same improvements were not seen with Sildenafil. So when we look at like the actual place in treatment, the newest updated guidelines that were just done in April 2019 um, mentioned Tadalafil in combination um, versus Sildenafil. So that's where that comes from. That at Circa um, has a fond place in my heart because apparently we had been filling this for somebody for like a year and a half mm-hmm. from when it was brand to when it went generic. And, and long story short, we weren't billing it correctly. So we got audited for like all of those fills. They they took like over $30,000 for it. Oh my gosh. Just all of it. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> it's not good at all. It's not ideal. Yeah, we don't talk about it anymore. Yeesh. It was bad. Anyways, done with those? Yep. 
Okay, so the next class are the uh, guanylate cyclase stimulants. There's only one of these. Um, it is Rio Coguat. Sigawatt. Sigawatt. Rio Sigawatt. Uh, Adempus is the brand name, so we're just going to stick with that one. Um, <laughs> so what it does, it stimulates nitric oxide receptors and increases the sensitivity um, of soluble guanylate cyclase to endogenous nitric oxide. Uh, it works alongside with nitric oxide, stimulates guanylate cyclase. Um, it does have adverse effects that you would expect from an increase in nitric oxide in your system or at least an increased sensitivity to it, like uh, fainting, syncope being the most significant. Um, also headaches, dizziness, um, low blood pressure, dyspepsia, uh, peripheral edema. Uh, you definitely would not want to use these with PDE5, similar to if anyone was taking a nitrate along with Viagra or Cialis. Absolute contraindication, significant hypotension, and uh, risk of death. So don't do that. Yes. It's also a pregnancy category X as well. So there's a REMS program with this. Um, in fact, patients have to show that they're using two forms of contraceptives, and they have to continue this for one month after stopping therapy. So just like uh, like Accutane or something, yep. um, these programs are set up so that we really avoid pregnancy with these patients. Um, smokers will need a higher dose um, of this medication because smoking um, will lower the drug concentrations. It's a, um, it's a substrate of 1A2, so it's going to be... Uh, Increased metabolism if you're smoking with it. Right. Um, and then if smoking uh, is, I'm sorry, not smoking, if the medication is stopped, um, then, because you have to titrate this med up over some time, um, if they're stopped for three or more days, you have to retitrate back up to the maintenance dose. Um, and then uh, there is there is some evidence as well with the uh, patent one trial that has some outcome data, but like I said, this is um, a class kind of by itself, but it is it is uh, approved for the, the three functional classes that we treat. So the last one we'll look at is Selexapag, which is a prostacyclin IP receptor agonist. Um, so this is going to uh, work on the prostacyclin receptor, the IP receptor, um, which is going to cause that activation of smooth muscle, causing that vasodilation, and it's going to uh, inhibit some of that smooth muscle um, proliferation and, and also platelet aggregation as well. So this one has multi, um, multiple mechanisms that it's kind of uh, acting on. And it's an oral tablet that is taken with food, um, mostly to, to prevent some of the GI irritability that happens with this. Um, nausea and diarrhea are very common side effects. However, there's also things like jaw pain um, and extremity pain that can happen, myalgias. Um, so those are things to, to kind of be aware of with patients. And um, again, if this is the same kind of thing where you have to titrate up very slowly, starting as low as 200 micrograms all the way up to 1,600 micrograms, and you kind of go um, weekly. And if the person misses three or more days, then you have to, again, kind of retitrate back up again. Um, otherwise, the side effects get really bad. Um, lots of drug-drug interactions because it's a, a um, CYP2C8 inhibitor. So, um, or excuse me, a, uh, um, a substrate. So you have to be use caution with uh, inhibitors. So like gemfibrazole, um, candesartan, clotrimazole, um, felodipine. So there's there's several. And then some of the moderate um, the moderate inhibitors of 2C8 that we would see a lot would be like spironolactone, lovastatin, simvastatin, um, ketoconazole, levothyroxine. 
cellmeterol, phenofibrate. So there's several. Um, but it's it's definitely uh, completely contraindicated if the person is using Jim Fibrazol. So that's the big one um, to kind of keep them in mind. Hopefully at this point you're not really using Jim Fibrazol, but just in case. I, I still see it. Yeah, I do too. So there you go. Um, and then this medication, the Bing Lake Landmark trial for it was the um, Griffin trial. Uh, so if you really want to nerd out, you can check that out. But that was done. Uh, I can't remember what year that was done, but it was um, done a few years ago. Probably. 2013, yeah, maybe? probably 2013. So um, going further, you can combine some of these to get better functional outcomes. Um, you can combine the endothelial and receptant agonists with PDE5s and vice versa. Uh, you can either, either do a triple therapy. You just want to avoid the guanolate cyclase inhibitors when you're combining. Uh, there's one trial that showed some benefit here called the Ambition trial. They combined um, ambrosentin with tadalafil versus either one of those alone, and that's the ERA with the PDE5. Um, so the initial combination therapy was associated with a significant reduction in time to clinical failure and um, hospitalizations associated with pulmonary artery hypertension. So some of those clinical features that were improved, um, not necessarily um, uh, improvement in uh, mortality, but at least clinical features that could be significant for quality of life. Yep. And that's actually one of the reasons for the newest update for the guidelines. So the guidelines used to have different um, treatment options kind of listed out. And usually for functional class two, they would have you do just single treatment monotherapy. So they would give you, you could use any of those new classes except for the prostacyclines and kind of pick your poison, so to speak. But now they, they actually recommend if a patient can tolerate two medications right off the bat with functional class two, that you go with ambrosetin and tadalafil a combination. Um, and then if they can't, then you can pick any of the other options as monotherapy. So that was one of the big changes this year with PAH. And then with functional class three, without evidence of rapid disease progression, um, or poor prognosis. Again, they ask, can the person tolerate triple th- or d- double therapy, combination therapy? And if so, then they want the embercetin and tadalafil combo. Um, where it kind of changes is if the patient has functional class 3 with evidence of rapid disease or they have a poor prognosis overall. That's when we would look to see if they're willing and able to manage with parenteral uh, medication. And if so, that's when they do either the IV epoprostenol or um, triprostenol as well or subcube triprostenol. Um, and if not, then they would look at the, either one of the inhaled or uh, oral prostenoids. Right. And it's when you get into the class 4 that you're switching from that um, primarily uh, the combination of the ambercent and the tadalafil if they don't have a poor prognosis other than just being in class four. Um, so if they can tolerate parenteral prostanoids, then you would want to do the continuous IV epiprostanol or um, tiprostanil or subcute tiprostanil. If they can't tolerate parenteral, then you'd want to use one of the inhaled options. Um, or one of the oral options. Yeah, and you, usually the inhaled options in combination with the PDE5 inhibitors. Right. Um, so that's if if the person is in class four, though, the, you know, the, they have all these problems at rest. So, and then it goes from there, um, eventually leading to hopefully a lung transplant if potential. So. Right. That's uh, yeah. Last but, line. Yep, the new guidelines were published in April of this year, so make sure you check those out. 
And um, hopefully that was somewhat beneficial to kind of run through that. Again, that is so out of our wheelhouse, but we figured we'd uh, give it a shot. I don't think I don't think we even had Electron in school. Really? Do you think we did? I can't remember. I don't remember it I don't, at all. I don't remember having Electron right now. Like pulmonary artery hypertension. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember. I have to go back and look. I don't know. That's a good question. I'll ask my student tomorrow. I mean, that's why, you know, that's why you're doing it because you're just better than... Uh, Better than better than our professors, right? Yeah, yeah. Tell everyone. <laughs> no, I uh, my PAs have that in our curriculum, so we had to we had to make sure we kind of ran through some of those right. drugs. But yeah, it's definitely a uh, a specialty um, disease state to be treating. Yes, but I, I I'm glad we were able to hit some common things that people would see out yeah, there, especially hopefully. with the PD5s and the calcium channel blocker high doses. And then next week, maybe we'll talk about something that we actually you know, confident with. Well, see, we always do that. So it's good that we're, you know, going out of our wheelhouse, even though I just sit here and listen to you for the most part, which is great. Nah. I learned a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you killed it. <laughs> I felt really good about that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I guess that's all we got today. Anything else you want to add, Cole? Nope. Ready to uh, get some sleep. I hear you, man. Love it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, as always, thank you all for the support. Thanks for the emails. And uh, we're doing our best to get back to the messages and things like that. So if we're a little slow, um, we apologize. But we're trying. And uh, so thank you all for the and the ratings, too. I keep seeing ratings pop up on, on uh, iTunes and whatnot. That means a lot to us. Thank you guys so much for that. And, um, you know, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, whatever, uh, feel free to reach out to us on email or any of our social media platforms. And we will see you guys next time. Later.